Well, good morning again to you, Church of God. I, we had our women's retreat this weekend, and some of you went, yeah, ladies, so good, and I got, my wife got, so, well, she got home, and I had the kids all weekend, and that was great, but uh, she got home, and I said, babe, she said, how was it? I was like, we're still alive, it was great, it's not that they're so much work, although they are, but just that the conversation isn't the most enriching you know, and so I'm like, we're never missing a date night again. I get now why you need adult conversation in a desperate way. Like when I come through the door, you're just, you know, starved for it. So, but I hear, I heard nothing but great things about the retreat. Uh, I heard some really encouraging things. And Robin we sat, sat me down by the fire as the kids were playing and just, um, I know fire, right? It's like 50 degrees outside. And um, was just, Gave, I feel like I was at the retreat by the end of it. I mean, she just gave me the whole, walked me through the whole thing. So good, so rich. Um, Kathy, thank you. Kathy's with us this morning and her husband, Udo. They're old friends. And we just, yeah, thank you. Thank you. Thanks for blessing our women, for pouring into them. Um, it's blessed us as a church and as husbands and friends. And it's a blessing to the Lord. So thank you for your investment. Really, really appreciate it. Love you. Love you both. Thankful that you're here. Um, okay, so we will be through, going through this book, 1 Corinthians, for the next six and a half months, so about half a year plus. Yeah, we're going to be here a while, so if you, if you don't like this book, I'm, I apologize. Um, just submit now, you know, just submit now. And uh, I'm really excited. So we're not, we tend, sometimes we'll, we'll preach through a book and we'll get, we'll hit the high points or we'll have eight weeks in a 12 chapter book. We won't hit everything. Not the case here. We're going through every single word. And so I'm really glad just to sink into it. It's a, you'll find out a lot more about it um, in the coming weeks and even today, but it's a letter that Paul wrote to a church 2,000 years ago. And so just like today, it's, it's to us, to us, a church with all of our problems and impurities and perfections and promises and identity in Christ. So really going to be a helpful series. I'm really excited about it. Um, Let me start us off by reading something. I usually don't start an introduction reading, but this is just too good not to read. So the commentator says this. He says, imagine a church racked by divisions. Powerful leaders promote themselves against each other, each with his, his band of loyal followers. One of them is having an affair with his stepmother. If you weren't awake, now you are. Um, that's right, one of them is, is having an affair with his stepmother. And instead of disciplining him, many in the church boast of his freedom in Christ to behave in such a way. Believers sue each other in secular courts. Some like to visit prostitutes. As a backlash against the rampant immorality, another faction in the church is promoting celibacy. This is not talking about the world, by the way. This is talking about this church. Complete, okay, so some are promoting celibacy, complete sexual abstinence for all believers as the Christian ideal. Still other debates rage about how decisively new Christians should break from their pagan past. Disagreements about men's and women's roles in the church add to the confusion, as if all this were not enough. Alleged prophecies and speaking in tongues occur regularly, but not always in constructive fashion. A significant number, it's like a fire that started to burn out of the fireplace and just burn stuff down. A significant number of these immature Christians do not even believe in the bodily resurrection of Christ. And then on the other side, a quote ended, On the other side, some people have sort of bypassed the cross and gone straight to the resurrection and forgotten about it altogether. Hey, we're past that. Let's just live the life to come now. It's fully here. 
So this, this, is a, um, this is an extremely, this is a group of people that have been made saints, that have been made holy, that are called to holiness through Christ, but it is, it is a very unhealthy in a lot of ways. And so this is the church that Paul writes this letter to. Um, this introduction, this is the introduction to his letter, his 16 chapter letter. It's a big letter to a church in Corinth in Southern Greece. And it's really, it's, he sort of touches on a lot of the things that he'll be uh, talking on for the rest of the letter. So it's a seedbed for the rest of the, the letter. So it's, it's been a bit difficult to try to condense into one thing because he touches on a lot of things that he'll expand on later. It's sort of like I teach a course, and I will soon hopefully in this church, that's right through the Bible in six weeks, trying to show how the Bible hangs together. And I present it as the Bible, a good way to understand it is Genesis 1 through 3 is an acorn. First three chapters of the Bible, it's an acorn. And out of that acorn grow, grows the rest of the, the scriptures. The whole arc of salvation, the whole salvation narrative, that arc all the way through Revelation, through the end of time until Christ returns, is pregnant in, is embedded in, is packed into. That DNA is there in that acorn of Genesis 1 through 3. And the rest of the tree of the scriptures grows out of that. Very similar here. This is a seedbed for the rest of what Paul's gonna say. So we're gonna touch on a few things. But if we had to condense it to one thing, we would condense it to the, the Corinthian people. Paul, Paul is saying to them that their identity, all they have and all they are, two words, is in Christ. Nothing worth having is outside of Christ and everything they need is in Christ, okay? And they are his and he is theirs. So let me give a little bit on the city and a bit on the church and then we'll jump in. Um, the city, like I said, it's in southern Greece. It's on an isthmus or a narrow neck of land connecting the Greek mainland in the north to the, uh, the Peloponnesus, what was called the southern Peloponnesus, um, the bit down below. So therefore, it was a major trade route. It was three and a half miles narrow at the narrowest point, sort of like the Panama Canal, but not a canal, it's the Panama Strip. And people tried to build a canal through it, but, not, but it didn't happen until I think the 19th century. But people would carry, there was portage, people would carry boats over rather than going all the way around the Peloponnesus and they would save time. So it was a huge trade route. It was really wealthy, therefore. It was extremely international because, I mean, mariners, sailors, and boats from all over the world are passing through this area. So extremely international, extremely wealthy, extremely evil, especially licentious. So sexually Sexually simple. Does that remind you of any place? Extremely wealthy, extremely international. You seen any strip clubs around here lately? <laughs> They're all over the place on West Timer Richmond, okay? So this is a hub for sex trafficking. This is a hub, a worldwide hub for sex trafficking. So it, we, we have a lot to learn. The Corinthian church is sort of, they've, they've soaked in the culture. Rather than being in the world but not of it, they're in the world and of the world. And so this is the church Paul's writing to. The Roman historian Plutarch speaks of a great army of prostitutes at Corinth. And the Greek geographer Strabo mentions the more than 1,000 prostitutes connected with the temple of Aphrodite in Old Corinth, which is the Greek Corinth. It was destroyed by the Romans and rebuilt later in 146, in 44 rather, by Julius Caesar. In Greek parlance, to Corinthianize, it had made it into the language, to Corinthianize in Greek was street talk for to go to the devil. Thomas Charles Edwards describes it as, he's a commentator, a city where Greeks, Latins, Syrians, Asiatics, Egyptians, and Jews bought and sold, labored and reveled, quarreled and hobnobbed in the city and its ports as nowhere else in Greece. In sum, says Leon Morris, Corinth was intellectually alert, materially prosperous, but morally corrupt. So it was therefore a strategic place right on the Mediterranean, this hub of everything, 
for Paul to go plant a church, preach a gospel, plant a church, and a few years later, he writes one letter that was lost, and then this letter, the second letter to the church at Corinth that we have, 1 Corinthians. He wrote four letters total. We have two of them. That's all that God deigned necessary for us, the church, to have. So he writes this letter from Ephesus, which is on, in western, now Turkey, Asia Minor then, um, to the church. And um, about 20 years, about mid-50s AD, about 20 years after Christ's resurrect, crucifixion and resurrection. So the church has bypassed the cross for the resurrection. Some don't believe in the resurrection. They've thought as gifts as more, they, thought, they think of gifts, the gifts of Christ, teaching, prophesying, what have you, healing, as more important than fruit. And uh, they're divided. They're extremely, there are factions everywhere in the church. And so Paul begins, as he does, with these 17 verses, um, reminding the Corinthians that they have been, three points tonight, this morning, saved in Christ, Notice everything is in Christ. They've been saved in Christ, they've been enriched in Christ, and they've been unified in Christ. Okay, so let's look at how they've been saved in Christ. Everything we have, he says to the Corinthians, right up front in his greeting, everything we have is in Christ. It's all in Christ. He talks briefly about how he just out of the gate says that he was called by God to be an apostle. And notice how he doesn't say that about Sosthenes. Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle, verse one, Jesus Christ and our brother Sosthenes. He doesn't say, Paul and Sosthenes called to be an apostle. He's showing that he was called, and he's arguing for his apostleship, for his call to be an apostle, a pillar of the church, right? One of the 12, as it were, apostles of Christ, um, to be a foundation for Christ as head and a pillar of the church for the church to have this message of the gospel to preach to the ancient world. And, and so he is arguing for that throughout this letter. He mentions his apostleship more in this letter than any other of the letters he wrote to the church that we have in the New Testament. So he's basically saying, hey, I didn't sign up for this. It wasn't something I thought was a good idea. Christ knocked me on the road to Damascus off of my donkey, blinded me, and took me prisoner for him, as it were, and therefore set me free. I think of the word of C.S. Lewis, his compulsion is our liberation. And so this is what Paul is saying here. I didn't sign up for this. This is God's word. This is God's call um, look, if, if he's called you to himself, that's, that's your security. You have come because of, because of him. And he has the power to break through whatever you're in the middle of and to come in and to pierce your darkness with his light this morning. I want you to know that. I want that to encourage you. Um, and he talks about in verse two how the Corinthians have been called to be saints. Um, verse two, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified Made, uh, made holy, hagiazod in the Greek, in Christ Jesus, called to be hagios, holy ones. The same, it's the same root word, together with all those who in every place call upon his name. Um, they, he's saying, look, uh, look people who look very unholy, who are living very unholy. You wanna know what your identity is? You are a holy people, set apart, purified, and also so you are, it has been, it's as good as done. That's your identity in Christ. It's been purchased for you. It's been given to you, received by faith. At the same time, now the ESV says, to those sanctified, it's as good as done. It's a past tense, but it's actually in the Greek, it's a participle, which means it's ongoing. It's an I-N-G verb. You're being hagiadzoed. You're being, you are being sanctified, and it's as good as done. It's something that is a total package purchased for you by Christ on the cross, given to you, received by faith, through no good of your own, and it works itself out, this sanctification, this holiness, this being made like Christ throughout your life. 
A lot of us think of the Christian life as just um, we are made right before God, received through faith, through the work of Christ, and then heaven. And then the in-between is just this big blank space. But Robin, this is one of the things she was talking about so wildly and excitedly last night that Kathy talked about was sanct- the, the, the category of sanctification. We are justified, we are made righteous in the sight of God through no good of our own, received by faith, by faith in Christ, lifted up on a cross for us and resurrected three days later. And then we are also, we are also all through the work of Christ, made conformed, transformed into his image as from glory to glory throughout our lives as we what? Abide in him and his finished work in Christ. He has all that we need for that gradual step-by-step, sort of one step back, two steps forward, kind of like in soccer when a lot of times they'll kick the ball backfield away from the goal in order to get more forward progress. This is oftentimes how the work of sanctification works itself out and fits and starts, but it does not depend on you. It depends on God, he says here, and his faithfulness and what he has done and who he is in Christ, in Christ. So he's, he's reminding them of these truths. And my, one of my old professors in seminary, he got in a car wreck years ago, maybe 15, 20 years ago, he got in a car wreck, and it was really bad. In the car, it, was, it happened such that he was pulling out a uh, two-way street with an island in between, maybe one of those esplanades, and he pulled out, and he looked to his right. He looked to his right before, right before he pulled out, nothing. I mean, cars, two cars, way, 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 way down, pulled out, and then saw something out of his eye, and all of a sudden, the cars were on him because they were racing. He was on a 35-mile-an-hour road, but they were going like 100 miles an hour. And so he pulled out, and all, the only thing that he had time to think of was, well, he didn't have time to think of anything except that what he didn't choose, you can't choose at that moment what's coming into your head. <laughs> you know, you might be able to choose a word, but he said there was one image that popped into my head. I had one thought. It came in voluntarily. It was a picture of me. I had a, see, I had a, uh, I had a friend at, at uh, Wake Forest where I went to school in North Carolina University, and um, he had a sugar squirrel, little squirrel, like that big, cute little thing, like a chipmunk. And he had a little, uh, he had a little plastic, hard plastic see-through ball. And he would just run around in it. Because they had a dog too. And he would just run around and like taunt the dog. Because he's totally safe, you know? And, and uh, that's what Rod Culbertson, my professor, said. He saw, he had a picture of him in a ball, encased in Christ. Nothing can touch me. No matter what happens, I am, I am fully saved. I am fully loved. I am fully bought and paid for. I am Christ's and he is mine. I am being sanctified. It is working itself. He is working it out in me as I abide in him, as I walk, it fits and starts, because he is faithful even when I am not. And, uh, and then he got hit, and he almost died. But uh, it's a powerful truth, and it's, it's a powerful picture um, that conveys a powerful truth. Another uh, illustration, if it helps, I was actually sharing this with the group of folks that are serving us and those of us that have kids, especially in our children, that are in um, taking care of the children and teaching them this morning and sojourn kids. And Austin, he's one of our members, and he, I shared a bit about sanctification. I kind of preach a short sermon to them. And he's doing wh- whiskey right now. He's, we aren't, okay, we aren't Baptists around here, so <laughs> we aren't Southern Baptists. Like, we, hey, getting drunk's a sin, but, but uh, we got one of our members that's like starting a whiskey business on the side. And so he, uh, he goes, hey, I got a whiskey illustration for you that just came to mind. Like, okay, shoot. Pretty good. He said, uh, 
Whiskey, technically, the minute it is inserted into, it's clear at first when you distill it. And then the minute you put it into the barrel and it gets all of its color from the oak or whatever wood barrel, that's where all the color comes from as it sits there and some of the flavoring and all that. And he said, the minute you put it in though, it's technically whiskey. But as it sits there and the things happen that happen with alcohol, it gains color and texture and character and it starts to change. Okay, so from the minute you put it in, it's whiskey, but it's changing and it's getting better, really. I mean, it's getting better over and over time and over time. And that's, if that helps, okay, there it is. That's the way we are. That's what Paul is saying here with how we are holy ones and also being made holy. Let that encourage you. That's all in Christ, okay? Um, He says this in verse three, he says, grace to you and peace. Verse three, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice what he does not say. See, this Paul says this in a lot of his letters so we can pass over it. What he does not say is um, grace and peace to you. He doesn't connect them in the Greek with, or here, in the Greek with a conjunction. He's saying grace to you first for a reason and putting it in that construction. Grace is not, one commentator said, it's not the attitude of God toward us. James Dunn said this. It's not the attitude of God toward us. It's the act of God to you. Grace is all of um, everything you need to be at peace with God all the benefits of Christ, all of his righteousness, all of his obedience, everything that's necessary to live holy and to be made holy, conferred to you by, by looking to Christ and believing on him that he died in your place. Yes, that's for me, I believe. That is the grace of God. It is the act of God in Jesus Christ applied to you through no good of your own. You just receive it. Yeah, I'd like that gift. Let me untie it. Let me unwrap it. Let me use it. Yes. That's grace. That is grace. It's a big, huge, divine positive for you. Looks like a cross. Because of that act of God, we have peace. We have peace. It's one of the first things Jesus said to his disciples when he rose from the dead. When he conquered death, when he paid for their sins on the cross, he could have come and squished them like jelly between his toes, and he would have had every right. But he didn't do that. He came in his first word to his disciples as they were terrified because they had just fled from him and they thought maybe he was a ghost. What did he say? He said, peace to you. That's a hard-won peace, friends. And he won it for us. And so because of the grace of God applied to us through Jesus Christ, we have peace. Uh, Gordon Fee, a New Testament scholar, he's worth quoting it somewhat at length here. He says, in a sense, this sums up the whole of Paul's theological outlook. The sum total of all God's activity toward his human creatures is found in the word grace. God has given himself to them mercifully and bountifully in Christ. Nothing is deserved. Nothing can be achieved. Tis mercy all. He's quoting from a hymn here. Tis mercy all, immense and free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. My chains, my chains were unbound. I rose, went forth, and followed thee when you called my name. The sum total, he goes on, the sum total of those benefits as they are experienced by the recipients of God's grace is found in the word peace. It means the peace of God, the shalom in the Hebrew of God is more than just, hey, peace, the peace that we know about from the hippie peace is just like, peace, man, don't tread on me, you know, do what you're gonna do, I'm gonna do what I'm gonna do. And, and that's, you know, no, the peace of, of the Hebrew shalom, the peace of God is a heavy thing, a substantial thing, it's a wholeness. We are all shattered fragments of what we are made to be because of sin because of the fall, 
but God has brought us peace. He's brought us wholeness in, there it is again, in Christ. We are being made like him. We have his righteousness placed over us. This is how God reckons us when he sees us if we have trusted in Christ. I just wanna say to you, friend, if you don't have peace, wholeness, completion, true rest this morning, I want you to ask yourself, have I received the grace of God earned for me through the stripes of his son, Jesus Christ? And if you haven't, do you know it's available? And I want you to come. I wanna plead with you this morning to believe on Christ and to come and to fall at his knees and to surrender. John Ortberg in his forward to Rankin Wilborn's Union with Christ, which I'm reading now. <clears throat> he says, Christ, the word Christian is found three times in the New Testament. Um, but, the, but Paul uses the phrase in Christ about 165 times. Um, all, all, everything is in Christ and of Christ. Um, he says, just in this first section, he's an apostle of Christ Jesus, verse one, sanctified in Christ Jesus, the Corinthians, verse two, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, verse two, grace and peace from the Lord Jesus Christ, verse three. The next section just continues this, verse four, the grace of God given to you in Christ Jesus. So that, that's us. We are saved in Christ. Let's move on to point two. Um, that's our foundation. That's Paul's foundation. It's what he starts with. Briefly um, get through the next two points, walk through them together, enriched in Christ. Okay, Paul starts to thank God for these people and talk about their benef the benefits that he sees in their lives and the blessings and what he's thankful for about them. Um, and that's verses four through nine. He starts with encouragement. Even though this church has a dude sleeping with a stepmom, he starts with encouragement. Man, that is a lesson to us. That is a lesson. To we, have a, we have a parish leader who in the fall had some stuff blowing up in his parish and his uh, smaller expression of the church's family and his little flock. And I was so pleased to see that rather than act in the flesh, defend himself, go in there and bulldoze, he started with encouragement, with pointing to the real things that he saw, the progress, the sanctification, the things that please the Lord, things that he loved about them, encouraging them, building them up, and then that paved the way for a really productive discussion, listening and discussing and pushing in on some hard things. That is a lesson to us. Paul, this is always his approach, except for Galatians. In Galatians, he just, we went through that book, and you'll remember, I said, he, just go, he just starts out swinging. But that's what the reason, but that's an exception. In the other letters, he starts with, I'm so thankful for this, I'm so thankful for that. Let me encourage you here, let me encourage you there. But first, let me remind you, you're in Christ, okay? So why does he do that? Well, one, he's smart. You know, the old Mary Poppins, the, you know, one of my favorite theologians, Mary Poppins, the, uh, the the spoonful of sugar makes the medicine go down, right? Remember that as a kid? A spoonful of sugar make, helps the medicine go down, right? So that's, that's, that's partly true, right? Like people are more apt, it's more palatable to receive something from someone that's hard if you say something, not, don't flatter, but true that you see in them that God's doing something you love about them. Um, but also, and this is I think more profound and important, he knows that it's only, get this friends, it's only when we know who we are in Christ that our identity is not our behavior. <laughs> our identity is not what someone else thinks about us. Our identity is not how we're feeling that day. Man, do I ride on that way too much. One time is too much. I have to push that aside daily. Man, if I'm feeling high, everything's great. I'm great. No, no. You know why I'm great? Because I'm in Christ. 
I'm a sugar squirrel in a ball whose name is Jesus. I bet that's never been said from the pulpit before. Amen. And so are you if indeed you have trusted in him. He does not change. He is unchanging. We change. We are extremely uh, fickle. But he, his name is faithful and he holds us. And we, that, he identifies us. When God looks at us, he sees Christ. That's your identity. So you can receive now, well, you can receive some praise without getting puffed up. Just God gets the credit. Thank you, Lord. You can receive some poking and encouragement if it's done well, but even if it's done poorly, guess what? That doesn't define me. I can receive that and work on that because I am rooted and grounded in Christ and he defines me. I am defines me. You see? See how that works? And so none of us do it perfectly. Fits and starts, one, you know, one pass back and then up the field we go, one step back, two up. We gotta give grace to one another because we understand sanctification and we understand our identity is in Christ so we can receive some feedback. It's okay. We're works in progress. We're secured though. We are holy. We're also being made holy. Okay. Um, Paul talks about the gifts. He says, man, you have all speech and knowledge. That kind of like covers everything. If you have all speech and all knowledge, like what else is there? He's saying, you're an extremely gifted church, verse five. Extremely gifted. He doesn't get into the nasties until later, but he's telling them what's true. You're extremely gifted. And this is a sort of, there will be a lot of previews and we're, you know, don't worry, we're, we're getting to the end there. Um, have about 10 or 15 to go, 10, let's say 10. Let's try to, um, we're not, we're, we're past the midway point. Um, but uh, they are an extremely gifted church, but he will say this over and over again. He'll dig in this and so will we later in the, in the letter. Um, but man, the mistake they make is they mistake, this is a mistake that, Every church makes at some point and every group of people and every person makes. They mistake gifting for fruit, gifting for character, okay? Um, Jonathan Edwards uh, wrote about this, the, uh, the American Puritan, um, in his book, Charity and Its Fruit, which is an exposition of 1 Corinthians 13 from this book. Paul talks about in, in chapter 12 of this book and in chapter 14, the gifts that they abound in and what they're for and how to use them and why they've been given to edify the church, not to boast, not to brag, not to showcase me, but to bless you. That's why, my, that's why I've been given the gift of teaching, not to get a bunch of attention, but to feed you, to feed you. That's why you have your gifts, to feed me, so that we might go out full and equipped and ready to preach Christ in every way in a thousand places to the world, right? So, but that is not the same. In the middle of those chapters, chapters 12 and 14, he stops for a minute and he puts it right in the center. He says, bullseye though is a better way. The bullseye is love. Love is a fruit of the spirit. And Jesus says in Matthew 7, by their gifts, you will know their mind. No, by their fruit, by their fruit. Thorn bushes produce thorns. Fig bushes produce figs. Apple bushes produce apples. If you have the fruit of the Lord, you have the Holy Spirit inside of you, you are God's. If you're gifted, I could preach the lights out up here and be mired in sin and actually unsaved. There are, there are countless stories of preachers who have preached and preached and seen people come to Christ and have been unregenerate and unsaved and dead in their sins and trespasses and later came to go, I, I preached for years unsaved. Gifts and fruit are not the same. And yet this is a very gifted church. So they've made that mistake. Let's not make that mistake too. Um, we thank God for the gifts, but we want the fruit because the fruit means you have a new disposition. You are made new in Christ. 
and you are growing in fruitfulness, love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. And Jesus, this, in this terrifying passage in the New Testament, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter seven, he says, people will come to me in that day. And Paul mentions that day here in verses seven and verses eight. He says, people will come to me on the day of judgment when every, all, everyone that's ever existed will stand before him. He is the judge, will judge. Are you with me? Are you against me? Are you in me? Are you in, in Adam, the one into whom you were born the first time? He says, people will come to me on that day and they will say, Lord, Lord, we, we knew you. We were with us in the streets and we, we, we talked to you and we did all these things. We performed all these miracles. We had all these gifts. And he'll say to them something absolutely terrifying. But I want you to hear it now. He'll say to them, away from me, I never knew you. You can be so gifted and, and, and be headed to hell. But thank God for the gifts. Okay, so that's what Paul's starting with. That's what Paul's starting with. <laughs> the gifts are a good thing, right? But we can use them. We can, we can mistake them for, the, for what uh, shows our salvation. Um, and he talks about the revealing. We'll press into this a lot more um, in the future. But he talks about, verse 7 and 8, the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ that will sustain you to the end in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice the words revealing, apocalypse in the Greek, okay? And he will sustain you to the end, what end? The day when he appears again for the second time bodily and comes to claim his own and to end evil and to send Satan where he belongs and all those that are with him. Um, and in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, Paul is constantly, he's obsessed with, he's living his life under the lights of the reality of the in-between time. Okay, Christ came and he rose from the dead and he started the age of the Holy Spirit, the age of the church, the last age, the last day before he comes again, return. He came once, he died, he buried our sins, he buried the old order, he rose to a new, a new, a completely new way of creation and all creation is gonna follow him and all that will come alive will follow him by faith. And we are coming alive day by day by day as we look to him and are made new. Okay, that's, this is the in-between time until what? He finishes that, comes again. So he started it, but we're in the middle where we still have sin, we still have pain, we still have cyclones, we still have alligators, we still have cancer. We have all that stuff. We're in the in-between time. Everything's groaning still. He's come, the new age is broken in, and yet it's not done, yet it's not consummate would be a theological word. It's not finished, but it will be. The end's gonna come, the day's gonna come, the apocalypse is gonna come, the reckoning's gonna come. And Paul is constantly living his life underneath the awareness of these two things. Um, constantly, constantly, constantly. And so um, a couple examples. It's, his, it's been called his, by one teacher out in California, his Polaris. The resurrection and then the return of Christ is, his, is Paul's North Star. It's what gives him his axis in life. I wanna ask you, is your North Star that day or is it today or 20 years from now? or your 401k, or something else. If, 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 it's, if it's not that day, the day he rose from the dead, and the day he's going to return, it's off. It's off, and you're gonna be living wrong, and I'm gonna be living wrong, and I'm guilty of living in light of tomorrow, or 40 years from now, or once the kids are out of the house, or no, I don't want the kids to be out of the house, or whatever it is, but no, this is Paul's Polaris, this is his anchor. N.T. Wright, Tom Wright, a British scholar, talks about it, 
as he said, the, the early Christians got this. Paul got this, and it changed the way they lived. They got, what they got is they lived in light of these two days, and the resurrection was, it, this whole thing's like a bicycle, this life that we live. The resurrection was the back tire. Christ had risen, he'd buried our sins, he'd paid for them on the cross, and he'd risen to a new type of life completely, and we are identified in that. And he, 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 that's like the back tire, and you put all of, almost all your weight on that back tire. You can't put your, all your weight on the front tire and ride a bicycle. But even without a front tire, you could possibly ride it just putting your weight on the back. So the resurrection started something new. It's huge. It's essential. Um, some of these guys had forgotten about the resurrection, okay, or didn't believe in it. But the front tire is the return, when we are going to have resurrected bodies. When Christ returns, you get a new body that is imperishable, that lasts forever. God loves matter. Jesus is still a man. He will always be a man representing you, men and women. If not, we, would lose, we wouldn't have a salvation. He, he remains a man to represent you before the Father. And we will hug him and we will hold him. And he still has the holes in his hands. And that is our front tire. And that gives us our direction. Okay, we put our weight on the, resurrection, on the resurrection of Christ and we get our direction from his return. And this is the light in which they lived. And again, I just wanna ask you, um, are you living in light of, he, he says in verse seven, as you wait, right? So that you are not lacking any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, or is that your posture? Are you waiting for that day? Are you waiting for his revealing? Are you making your decisions in light of that? Um, are you asking yourself, does this decision or course of action make sense in light of eternity, in light of my face-to-face -face reckoning with Jesus who will return, the returning king, when you choose a job, when you choose a spouse, or a boyfriend or girlfriend, or um, when you're spending your money, your money, God's money, when you're stewarding it, when you're suffering, when you're suffering, are you thinking of it just, it's so easy to do, guilty, in light of, oh, this stinks, in light of today or just this life? Are you thinking of it in light of his resurrection and his return and how he is using it to produce in you, if you will but let him, if you will but surrender, to produce in you an eternal weight of glory? Nothing, I would say, nothing produces if we're fixed on Christ, if we know that we're in Christ positionally, Nothing produces the image of Christ in us like suffering. And it is his tool because he loves you. So are you thinking of that, those things, and so many more in light of the resurrection? There's so much on, uh, on an underrealized eschatology and an overrealized eschatology. I'm gonna skip it all. I'll save these notes and we'll come back. That's the good thing about preaching through a big book. We'll have time, okay? We'll have time. Let me just close down with unified in Christ, point three. In, okay, so we're, we're saved in Christ, we're enriched in Christ, and finally we're unified in Christ. Just five minutes and then we're done. Unified in Christ, um, he unites us because he has, ma is making, has made us and is, is making us into a place for him to dwell in, his home. And we are called his body by Paul in 1 Corinthians 12 and elsewhere. And so Christ's body can't be divided, can it? And so when it is, it just doesn't, it doesn't fit with the metaphysical fact of who we are in Christ. And so it's, it's, a, it's a bad, bad thing. And so that's how Paul finishes his introduction, verses 10 through 17. He's talking about how there are divisions all over. And God, it can't be, guys. And he even says at one point, he's like, are you with, are you with I'm with Paul, I'm with Apollos, another, another evangelist, another Christian defender of the gospel. Or some people say, I'm, I'm in Christ. You can even use Christ 
You can even use Christ. I can even use Christ to divide this body that he's building. Because the emphasis is not, I am in Christ. It's not on Christ. It's on I. I. I'm in Christ. I don't know where you are, brother. See we can, how we can do that? But Christ calls us to unity. He died for unity. He laid his life down. He was torn asunder so we could be made whole. He was robbed of any peace so we could be given a deep rest and shalom and soul abiding in him. Um, so Paul talks about these divisions. You know, there's, it's a war maxim, divide and conquer. It's a war maxim. If you divide, it's so much easier to conquer. It's so much easier for Satan to conquer you if you're away from this body. And even if you're here present, but sort of away from it in spirit by bickering and gossip and envy and backbiting and all sorts of and pride and all sorts of other things. Like you're, he's dividing you so that he can conquer you and he can conquer this church, okay? Um, that's one of his strategies. It hurts us, but it also hurts the world because our greatest witness to the world is to love one another. And when we do that with the love of Christ, when we love each other with the love that Christ loves us with, and we don't drum up, we don't gin up a love, we're in Christ. We receive it from him, we drink from the fountain of living waters, and then we just let it flow out of us. It's his love through you, you're a vessel. And when that happens, guess what the world does? They stand back and they go, now Jesus is real. And that people is weird. But, man, something's going on here. Let me, maybe I should check this out. Or maybe they flee in terror, but that's actually what we want. We want one of two reactions, and God is the one who does that. That's not up to us, but it is up to us through the love of Christ that we receive to love one another as he has loved us and to lay our lives down for each other. And that is a witness to a watching world. So we hurt and the world hurts when we are divided. Um, now the unity, there's so much power in unity just from a, Worldly perspective, right? Um, I read this on the internet, so it's kind of like finding something on Wikipedia. You know, my supervisor up in Edinburgh said, never use Wikipedia. You know, <laughs> he's just, no. Um, but I found this on the internet, so who knows if it's true? That's my disclaimer. But it sounds cool. Um, he says this, he says, he says, if all 600 muscles in your body pulled in one direction, you could lift 25 tons. Now, like Ted or, or, or Robert could lift way more than, you know, like I could. Okay, so there's obviously a huge variation in there, but let's just assume that's true. If all the muscles in your body pulled in the same direction in concert, in unity, you could lift 25 tons. Um, there are 377 comments on that one comment. I didn't read them all, but my favorite one on the first page was, even so, you still couldn't lift your mom. <laughs> just like, of course, some guy brings up a mom joke. It never gets old. So ridiculous. Okay. Um, unity, friends. It's the one thing Paul pled for in Philippians 2. He said, hey, Philippian church, if you have any love for God or me at all, if you appreciate anything God is doing, anything, let me ask you one thing. Be of the same mind. Be unified. Okay. And how do we do that? He said, like Christ did, laying his life down for you. So lay your life down for one another. It's the last thing, so it's the one thing Paul pled for. It's the last thing Jesus prayed for, for us, the church in John 17, before he went to the cross. It's the main way the world will know that we're Christ's and he is ours. John 13, like I said. In ba at Babel, the, chapter, the last sort of chapter kind of before the primeval history ends in Genesis 10 and Abraham starts and the whole rest of the salvation saga begins. Babel, they're trying to get to God on their own steam. And even on their own steam, 
God says of them, he looks down and he says, if they are not divided, if they remain unified, nothing that they desire, they shall not be able to accomplish. Wow. Um, it's, unity is powerful, and so he scatters them. And Pentecost, where Jesus uh, ascends to the Father and sends his spirit to those who call upon his name. Pentecost is the opposite of Babel. At Pentecost, the first thing the resurrected, reigning Messiah does for his people is he unifies them. He brings them together. Many, many tongues, they start speaking one tongue, and they come together, and in Jesus' name, they're saved. So unity is powerful. Paul writes, not to the churches in Corinth, but he says, to the church at Corinth. In Revelation chapters two and three, when Jesus speaks to the church, he speaks to the church, singular, in each of these areas. Okay, how many churches are there in Houston? We ought to be unified as a church, but also we ought to remember there is one church in Houston, a church that Christ has purchased for himself by his blood at the cost of his own soul. And we ought to be working together, linking arms in prayer and in every other way possible for the sake of people being saved, darkness being rolled back, his kingdom advancing. We can't do, we're called to this neighborhood, we're called to this area, but man, let's link arms with Christ's one church in Houston. That's why we pray for a different church every week. Um, how do we avoid um, isolation and stay united? We shun gossip, we shut it down when it's happening. We speak the truth in love. Uh, recently, a church planting resident in Montrose texted me and said, man, something you said recently offended me, and I think it was because I, I said it, I think he misunderstood me, but that was probably my fault. I didn't articulate well enough. And so he's like, I feel like the right thing to do rather than get offended by it, stay offended by it, or just assume the worst about what you said or talk to somebody else about it is to come to you. I'm so thankful he did. I'm so thankful he did. It gives me a chance to explain myself better, to meet with him and say, I'm sorry, brother. Can we talk through this? You teach me. Like, that's the way we ought to do it. Um, we, and, and uh, I'll say this, and then I'm finishing with verse 17, and then we're done, okay? We, okay, how do we, how do we pursue union? How do we avoid dissension? Um, we press into opening up our lives to one another. We've been called together to be a covenant community. We, we pursue accountability, openness, glasnost was the old uh, Russian word when the, when the curtain started to come down and uh, Gorbachev, uh, I think, brought it into the parlance. Glasnost, vulnerability, openness, transparency. I'm not identified by my sin. I'm identified in, I'm in Christ. So guess what? All this stuff that's keeping me from him, that's keeping me from being sanctified, it doesn't identify me, so come on in and help me root it out. I can't do it alone. Text threads, get on some text threads. And every time you are tempted to go, down a path that's not a path that's glorifying to the Lord. I'm talking, temptation is not sin. That is one thing Satan wants you to believe. Hey, if you're tempted, you're sinning. Jesus, our Lord, was tempted and yet was without sin. If you're tempted, shoot up a road flare. Call someone. Go take a jog. Go over to someone's house. At least get a text thread together and text some folks out and say, pray for me. I need help. And guess what? Like the fact that you're getting that out there probably means you're not going to do that. It's good stuff. It's easy, it's simple, but do that. Get on a text that if you're not on one, let people in this church know, people you trust, like maybe it's two of you or three of you or a smaller group, like I need you in my grill and in my business and I'm getting in yours. Open up to people about that, okay? Let's be that kind of community because we're in Christ, that's our identity. And if we're not in Christ, why don't you come on in? It's a good place to be. But that doesn't identify us so I can open up, man. 
Um, have, a, have a person in your life. My brother-in-law asked me this at our last lunch last week. He's like, who's holding you accountable? It's like, bro, a lot of pastors don't have that. And guess what? You're in groups. We're savvy. Our sin is so savvy. Like you can get in groups and have these list of questions and you can, you can kind of say what you want to say. Make sure that you put yourself in a place where you can't wiggle out. Man, don't trust yourself. We're to be in community. We're to be loving one another in the light of Jesus Christ. Step into that light and darkness. When you turn the lights on, man, the roaches flee, right? And Christ, he shined his light on us and he wants us to come into that. That's not life. Satan's whispering to you that if that goes, you go. Lie! He's gonna turn that into something beautiful. Satan doesn't want that. Come on now. I think I'm preaching, but I gotta close now. And how does, and what's the main way that Paul says, hey, what's the main thing that unifies us? He ends with this, verse 17, this glorious verse that my friend told me. You should preach the whole time on that. Of course, I haven't. I've preached this the last two minutes, but here's why. Here's why. First of all, here's one of the beautiful things about preaching the whole counsel of God. You, sh- you can't skip. Hey, man, especially stuff that you want to skip, hot-button topics that the culture thinks, oh, you guys are a bunch of bigots, or whatever it is, a known personal sin that I don't want to shine in on me, it's there, I got to preach it. Hey, man, this is good stuff. This is good for our souls. You're going to get all this word unpacked for you. And this is at the end, and so I'm preaching this too. But also, it's the start of the next whole next section, which is glorious, and that's coming next week, so we'll have time. But how does Paul finish? What's the thing that unifies? He says this. He goes on and on about baptism, and then he finishes with this. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but what? To preach the gospel. You want to know what unifies? The gospel. The glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, the news that is beyond all news, the fact that we are miserable, wretched sinemies and sinners, rebels who have gone our own way, who have shaken our fist at God and who rejoice when he was crucified. And he was crucified for us. And that's where the good news converges. He did it. He took all that upon himself and into himself, becoming sin for us who are estranged from God, that we might get his righteousness in return by believing on him, that we might become the righteousness of God through no good of our own. This is the gospel. It's a great leveler. And when you realize that you are identified in that, all pride goes away, okay? And humility binds us together. Who am I to point the finger? Man, I deserved crucifixion. I deserved hell. But he took it. And man, if that doesn't, as we preach that to one another and to a lost world, if that doesn't bind us, it will. It will. The only thing that truly binds. And Paul says, man, this is what I came to do. This is what I was called to do. This is the mantle on me. I came to preach the gospel, not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross be emptied of its power. Let us never dress up the cross. Let us never sidestep the cross. Let us never bypass the cross for the resurrection. Let us always understand that the cross is our crossroads. The cross is um, the crux of our very lives and of all of space and time. The cross is what ineluctably, gloriously, inevitably leads to the resurrection. You cannot get to the resurrection without getting dead first. And Jesus buried your old man and all the sin that stood against you and God, he buried it. And he rose as proof that God accepted that payment. So let us be preachers 
the cross to one another and to the world that he's given to us to take in Jesus' name. Let me, uh, let me, let me pray. Lord, I thank you so much for the cross. I thank you that it wasn't antiseptic, it wasn't pretty, it was the worst train wreck in the history of ever, and you used it to save those that you came for. You became ugly to make us beautiful, and you are beautiful, and we love you. Lord, we thank you for doing that. We thank you that that is the best expression of who you are and of your heart. You are a loving, humble God who hates evil and who hates it so much that you took it upon yourself and buried it. May we flee to you. May we run to you. Holy Spirit, do what you do. Now and forever, we love you. Amen.